0: Since the last day of January, we have been deeply entrenched in what is probably the most famous sermon in all the world, and it's just simply known to the followers of Christ as the the Sermon on the Mount, and it's not just known by the followers of Christ. This sermon has elements in it that probably most people are familiar with. Whether they attend church or not, they've heard things about Jesus. And they've heard about Beatitudes. They've heard things about loving, uh, loving people and, and praying for enemies. They've heard about the Lord's Prayer. Just about everybody, whether they attend church or worship service or, or some kind of religious gathering or not, everybody is probably familiar with this sermon because it is so well known. And it's in this this incredible sermon that, as we said several weeks ago, that Jesus is speaking in a crowd. There is a a crowd that is gathered, and he begins speaking in this crowd, but he is targeting a smaller group within the crowd. He He is targeting his disciples, those that have chosen to follow him or are choosing to follow him. Remember again how Matthew sets us up to hear the sermon. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them. And it's from that point that he launched into this incredible sermon, this incredible message. His teaching was specifically for his followers, for his his disciples. However, this sermon is, is so mesmerizing, it is so compelling, it is so completely different from anything else that these people had heard before that Matthew felt compelled to sort of book in the sermon with, with some of his own words. At the end of the sermon, it says that even the crowds, you know, the, the people who Jesus is not specifically addressing, even the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as their scribes. You see, and this was mesmerizing to them, because the scribes would would stand up and they would teach, but they would teach in the name of someone else. They would teach in the name of a rabbi whom they had studied under. But here is Jesus who has come along and he has raised standards. He is speaking and teaching with one who has authority. He says, you've heard it said this, but now I'm telling you that. And he begins to raise that standard and the crowds were astounded by the things that, that he began to. To share you see if we if we will slow down long enough if we'll just sort of hit the pause button on life and allow the sermon to, to penetrate our hearts and to to penetrate our our minds in the midst of the distraction that seems to be constantly swirling around us then I think that this sermon will have the same effect on us let me say that again because we're busy people, are we not? I would, if I was a betting man, I would wager that some of you were distracted when I made that statement. That you might not have actually heard what I said. Because that's sort of the way it is. We, we have all these things that are going on around us. And it's, if we will slow down, if we'll just just pause, take a deep breath, take a time out, whatever we want to say, and just slow down and really allow this sermon to work into our hearts, to work into our minds, then I think I think the same effect that the crowds experienced will happen to to us as well. I believe that people today still come away astounded by the, the teachings of Jesus. And the reason I believe this is because the teachings of Jesus are so radically different from anything else that the world has to offer. They call us out of our selfishness. They call us to a, to a higher standing. During the, uh, the 1930s, 40s, uh, German pastor, uh, theologian, and, and eventually martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was so moved and so taken by the Sermon on the Mount that it completely changed his, his belief system about the role of of nationalism and religion, and he believed that they were completely entwined. And the deeper he read into the Sermon on the Mount, he realized that it's not so. And he wrote a book that was called The, The Cost of Discipleship. And this book, to this day, that was written in 19, around 1937, this book, to this day, is still considered one of the most essential and influential books on discipleship. Bonhopper was was so taken by the Sermon on the Mount that he took that sermon and he based his book around the teachings from it. And it's in this book he presents a a case for what it means to follow Christ as he he reveals the, the dichotomy between cheap grace and costly grace. Look at what he says here. Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Grace without discipleship. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must know. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's a heavy saying, is it not? When Christ calls us, men, women, and children, when he calls us, he is essentially saying, come and die. How do we know that? Because if you're really my follower, you will take up your cross daily and follow after. That's what, what Christ does. And that's why this, this teaching, at a lot of times, you know, it's very difficult to understand. It's very difficult to, to put into practice. But it's teaching that if we will allow to penetrate and work through our lives, you know, it'll work like leaven. And it can change us. And so the question that I want to, to consider this morning is this. And really, it's two questions. And here they are. Does the sermon move us in this way? Are we astonished at Jesus' teachings? Do we read the the Sermon on the Mount and say, man, this this is what real life looks like. This is what it really means to be a follower of Christ. It's not about, you know, I just do my thing during the week and then on Sunday morning, you know, I'll put on the nice clothes, and I'll make sure everything looks right, and I'll uh, you know, kind of tuck in all of my sins so nobody can see those. I'll get them out later on. But I'll come and I'll play the part on Sunday morning. I'll play the game so that everybody thinks I look good. And then the rest of the week live a, a completely different way. Or when we read this, this message that says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do we, do we come away with that with, with, a, with a sense of amazement, with a sense of, a, of being astounded? Because right here, what Jesus is saying is the most important thing is that you seek God with everything that you have. And if you will do that, everything else you need in life, listen, listen, everything else you need in life will be given to you. Which means if we're not seeking God, we're really not going to find the most important things of life. Does that make sense? And so how does the sermon work on us? Do we Does the sermon still move us in this way? Are we astonished at his teachings? Are we the ones who seek grace without discipleship? Are we the ones who are simply coming here in search of a a cheap grace? Well, that's what I want us to ponder for for the, the next few minutes. And these questions will be up on the screen as we sort of do a flyover of this incredible message that Jesus lays out. It's, it's in this, this most fascinating message of Jesus that we see things that he reveals to us, that he teaches us, that he challenges us on, that he, that he calls us to. And so you start looking through chapter 5 and you realize that, that Jesus is revealing what kind of disciples that he is looking for. Okay, He is saying, if you're going to be my follower, this is what a follower is supposed to look like. And he lays out those beatitudes, you know, those, those eight statements that we spent a long time looking at and breaking down each one. And it was those first four that are sort of designed to help shape us and and transform us as we approach God. once we get to the mountaintop, long enough to be in the presence of God, we want to get comfortable and stay there, then Jesus points us back down the other side of the mountain for the other four Beatitudes. Because there's a world waiting at the bottom that doesn't know that this is the best thing, that doesn't know that there is a better way to live life. And it's in those second four that Jesus is saying, look, this is what you're supposed to look like. This is what you're supposed to be like as you, as you interact with people, people who, who, who don't know you. And so right on the heels of that, Jesus reminds us of what we are. Not what we should be, but he says, you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. As we engage our community that is often full of darkness and at times very tasteless, as the followers of Jesus, we are to be the preserving influence in our community. He raises our, our standard of, of what it means to follow Him and honor Him in our marriages. He raises the standard of, of what it means in, in how we use our words. Because you know, our, our words, while we say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me, that, you, that, we know that's a lie, right? Who, is, who has ever not been hurt by words? Who has been? Yeah. Words hurt. Words do tremendous damage to people. Okay, and and here's the thing about our words and about being a follower of Christ, and and we're going to talk more about this toward the end, is that if we don't mind our tongues and our words and our hearts and our attitudes and all of these different things, our words not only hurt others, but they can damage the kingdom of God or at least damage our witness for the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? If we don't use them right, if we don't monitor them, if we don't don't measure what we say before we say it. Now then, we're all going to have a slip of the tongue, right? We're all going to have a bad day, okay? We're all going to stump our toe and all of you are going to cuss because I don't because I'm holy. I don't do things like that. Okay, but I know all of you do. <laughs> That's not true either. <laughs> but we're all going to have bad days, okay? And, and w- there are going to be times when we, we blow it, okay? The deal is just, I mean, if we blow it, we've got to fix it, okay? Hey, look, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that, okay? Donnie hit my hand with a hammer, and I let it out. I couldn't hold it back anymore, okay? You know, we've just we got to do what we can to make things right. Okay, and hopefully the people that we're interacting with that we might have offended or whatever will know that everybody has a bad day. You see, but if we just constantly are spewing things, boy, that's really damaging to a witness, is it not? That's why I said a few weeks ago, that's why I said a few weeks ago, if, if you're going to act like that and you want to say all kinds of terrible, horrible things and act horrible, that's fine. You can do that, but please stop calling yourself a Christian. Okay, I mean, you can do those things. Just please stop telling people, that, that you go to church and stop telling people you follow Jesus okay let them find that out by accident okay and then they can ask you questions and it'll be awkward but you know we have to be mindful of of those things okay Jesus he, he raises our standard in those things he raises our standards in our words and our actions and our deeds he, he taught us he taught us what it means to, to love our enemies and and to pray for them, which is a very difficult thing to do as we move into chapter six Jesus teaches us how to approach God in prayer. We spent a Sunday a couple of weeks ago looking at the, the Jesus prayer. And it's in this prayer that he teaches us to pray outside of ourselves because many times we're, if we're not careful, then we can be prone to, to be selfish and, and banal when it comes to prayer. That it's, it's just about the things that I need and I want and give me this and give me that and give me this. And A lot of times we forget that there's really other things in the world that we can be praying for. He reminds us. He reminds us that forgiveness is not an optional thing. But that it must be extended in order for it to be received. And that one's that one's tough, is it not? Because Jesus said right after right after that prayer you got to forgive. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do, what? Not forgive. There's a condition here, isn't it? Which means this is not cheap grace. This is costly grace. If you do not forgive, neither will your father forgive your trespasses there's an exchange that takes place there. you see if we want to be forgiven then we have to forgive if i want to be forgiven i have to forgive you i love how god built that into it that jesus sort of built that into this this divine exchange that takes place if we want to to be forgiven, we must forgive as well. And the thing about forgiveness is it's never a one and done. It's never a one and done. And Jesus knew that. Because Peter said, Hey, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven? Jesus' reply was not, not seven, seventy times seven. Or over and over and over and over and over and over. As long as it takes, as long as somebody needs forgiveness, you 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 gotta forgive. You now that's such a tough tough lesson for us but it reminds us of that he also points us to things that are are the most important not the the material things of earth but the things of heaven and you know we we struggle with that don't we because a lot of times we place our value and our worth in the things that we're able to purchase or the things that we're able to achieve or, or attain. Does that, does that make sense? You know, it's the, uh, you remember those, uh, those no fear uh, shirts and posters and, and, and things from the 90s? You know, some of you won't because you weren't there, which is a sad commentary in itself. But for those of you that weren't there, there was this, you know, this no fear slogan. And, and one of those slogans was, he who dies with the most toys wins. You know, we understand that message. Whoever can get the most stuff, you win. You're the best. You got more than anybody else. You defeated everybody. Whoever dies with the most stuff wins. I think if Jesus were to correct that, he'd say, he who dies with the most stuff is still dead. Okay? Okay? Whoever has the most stuff, yeah, okay, fine. That stuff is not going with us. We don't take that stuff with us. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's why He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now then, do we have treasures on earth? Absolutely we do. All we've got to do is look out in the parking lot, and we can see that we've got treasures. All we have to do is go in some homes and know that we have treasures. Okay, we have some great things. And when Jesus says make sure you're not storing up for yourself. What he's saying is make sure that's not where your worth is. It's not in that, that's not what's most important. What's most important is storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I think we only do that when we are able to completely, fully follow Jesus as we should. But he reminds us of these things, that it's about trusting in Him, and it's about seeking God first in all of these things. If you'd go get our friends. In uh, in chapter 7, Jesus moves on, and He, he begins to, to hit us in, in other ways that are, are, are so difficult. He hits us in an area that, that many Christians are, are prone to struggle with, where he, he takes aim at our judgmental hearts and our our hypocritical attitudes, and it's tough. He also reminds us of the goodness of our, our, our loving Father, who gives to those who who seek Him. He says, "Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened." you see here's the, th- the other thing too is that so many people think God is trying to keep them from things but what Jesus is saying is no life is there ask seek not God wants you to have this he wants you to have grace he wants you to have blessing he wants you to have abundant forgiveness and love and mercy it's yours for the taken come and Come and get it. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who searches, finds. And everyone who knocks, guess what? The door will be open to you. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, you'll give a stone? Have you ever done that to your kid? Kid asking you for something good and you give him something bad? Uh, No, if you were joking with him, I get that. You're just messing with them. I understand that. But if your kid ever genuinely needed something and you gave them something terrible, no, because we love our children. You know, we want them to have good things, and that's how God is. God knows how to to give these good gifts. He cautions us to, to be wary of those who would lead us astray, and He reveals... He reveals to us that just knowing Jesus is not always enough. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord. But there's even more. And to do this, I've got some friends that are going to come up, and they're going to they're come and help us see what else Jesus wants us to be aware of as, as he closes out his sermon. So uh, if you would welcome my friends to the stage, go ahead and give them a round of applause. And you guys just kind of come along right up here. Just back here, guys. Back here. Just come on up. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're getting ready to move into this, into this teaching. And as Jesus is, is closing out the Sermon on the Mount, he has this, this incredible parable that he uses as a reminder, and he's fixing to make a, a deeply deeply important point, and so I thought to to help us better understand this, I thought I'd invite our friends up here to, to help us, so take it away. Give these guys a hand. You guys hold on just a second. They did a great job. Hold on just a second right there because I want to ask you something. You know, that is such a a simple children's song. And, you know, last week, Tim used a simple children's song to teach us uh, about some really important things uh, about Scripture and about Jesus and about love. So, let me ask you this. The... The wise man, what did he do? Where did he build his house? On the rock. rock. Right, that makes sense, right? Where did the foolish man build his house? On the sand. sand. Okay, so what's the difference? Yeah, the sand is not as firm as the rock. And so what happens is, you know, Jesus is, is talking about something that would happen. The rains would... Come in during the rainy season and it would swell the Jordan River and it would overflow its banks. And from the outside, you may have houses that both look really good, that both look really strong. But what happens when the the foolish man, when the rains came down, what happened to his house? It went splat. Splat. But for the wise man who built his house on the rock. When the rains came down and the floods came up and it overflowed the banks, what happened to the wise man's house? It stayed firm. Why? Because it was built on the rock, which means it was what? Stable. It was solid. It was a solid foundation. Hey, give these guys another round of applause. And so now we come to the end of this incredible sermon. And Jesus closes it with the parable that our children just demonstrated for us. In verse 24, Jesus says Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, the rain fell the floods came the wind blew and beat on the house but the house did not fall because it had been founded on rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand the rains fell the floods came the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell And then notice this, and great was its fall. A simple story that makes such a a deep and important point. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine, okay? So there's a question there. What's the question? Which words are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus. Everything that he has just laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. Beatitudes, loving people, salt and light, watching your words, watching your actions, honoring God in our marriage and in our relationships, praying as Jesus taught us to pray, not laying up treasures on earth, but laying up treasures in heaven, not being judgmental, not being hypocritical, Jesus says, now then, miss the, we've spent months in this sermon. Let's, don't miss this last bit. Because this is it. And this is maybe one of the most important things. Everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Does not act on them. Will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand when the wanes The rains came, and the floods rose, and the wind blew. The house was destroyed. Such a simple parable, but such a deeply important point. We have to build our foundation on Jesus, on the rock. You see, everything can look great and can look fine on the outside, okay? It's easy to play the part of a Christian. Sing the songs, give the money, go to church, show up to a few events. Okay? It's easy to, to play the part of a, of a follower of Christ, at least convincingly enough to fool our friends. Okay. Someone who is not built on the foundation of Jesus, someone who is not putting the words of this message into their life, it is going to become apparent. Okay, it's going to become obvious. That's why Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, because there's more more to it. It's about how we live our life as followers, as as disciples. Jeffrey related a story to me on, on Friday. He... If you didn't know, Jeffrey likes to work out. I don't know if you knew that or not. And apparently he's pretty strong. Doesn't really look like it, but you know. But he's at the gym, and he sees that as an opportunity to exercise his faith as well as his muscles. Okay, and so he often finds himself in conversations that are, that are spiritually minded. And he met someone and they began talking. They were having a really great, uh, really great conversation. Jeffrey's talking about his faith and he's talking about uh, his marriage with Janet and how great that is and, and that it's based on Jesus and all of these things. And eventually the conversation turned to where this, this individual asked Jeffrey, you know, what church do you go to? And Jeffrey said, Cornerstone. And he said in that minute the, the, the conversation, there was a shift that took place in the conversation. And the demeanor of this individual changed. Because years and years ago this guy had known a member of Cornerstone. Now then, don't go ask Jeffrey who this person was. But there was he portrayed himself as a, a follower of Christ but then there were Times when his words and his actions didn't show it. And that, that can leave a deep and lasting impression. Can it not? That's why we have to guard our tongues. That's why we have to guard our minds. That's why I say, if you're going to, to live opposite of what Jesus is saying, that's fine, but also stop telling people that you follow Jesus. If you're going to say you follow Jesus, follow Him. If you're going to say you live for Jesus, live for Him. Don't allow unguarded moments and bad attitudes and judgmental hearts, don't allow that to undo good work, good kingdom work. Now then, like I said, we all have bad days. We all stump our toes, and we all mess up from time to time. But if we do, we have to do what we can to make it right. Because that was a long-lasting impression. I don't want someone to not come to our church because of my attitude or my act right just as i don't want someone to not come to our church because of your attitudes or your actions but i want them to come because they see that this is a place that loves jesus and loves his word and is being transformed by those things you see this is it's not about this sermon it's not just about words it's about action and and, and let me say this as well let me say this as well it is also not about following jesus what i mean following jesus is also not about just consuming Do you understand what i mean it's not only about just coming in here and sitting does that make sense It involves action. To just consume is cheap grace. It's about costly grace. Bonhoeffer goes on and he says this. He says, we have listened to the Sermon on the Mount and perhaps understood it, but who has heard it right? Jesus gives the answer at the end. He does not allow His hearers to go away and make of His sayings what they will, picking and choosing from them whatever they find helpful and and testing them to see if they work. He does not give them free reign to, to misuse His word with their mercenary hands, but He gives it to them on the condition that it retains exclusive power over them. Humanly speaking, we could understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. Jesus knows only one possibility. Simple surrender and obedience. Not interpreting it or applying it, but doing and obeying it. That is the only way to hear His Word. But again, He does not mean that it is to be discussed as an ideal. He really means us to get on with it. You see what I'm saying? It's it's not just about consuming. It's not just about sitting in the church and just taking everything in. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act, In other words, if you you hear this, you hear these beatitudes, you hear this this stuff on on how to treat people, you see this stuff about prayer and being salt and light and loving enemies and praying for those who persecute you, about not being judgmental and hypocritical and, and all of these things. If you see those things and don't do them, well, you're like the foolish person who built his house on the sand. And when tough times come, your house is going to be completely wiped out because you're not anchored to the rock. You're not anchored on a, on a firm, on a, on, a, on a true foundation. So I want to come back to the questions that I open with. Does the sermon move us in this way? Are we astonished at his teaching? Or are we the ones who seek grace without discipleship? Which is cheap grace. I don't want us to be known as a people who seek only cheap grace. Does that make sense? Well, here's our growth point for the morning and you'll notice the hashtag at the bottom has changed costly grace requires that we follow Christ not at a distance but up close and personal doing what he does and participating in the work of the kingdom. it's that Jesus I know what you did for me I want to do what you do I know you love me. I want to love like you love. I know that you've served me. You've washed my feet. I want to love and and serve and and, and wash feet the way you wash feet. That's what, what costly grace is. It's not just consuming. It's not just sitting in... A pew. It's not just singing a song. It's not just putting a check or money in the offering plate. It's not just listening to a, a sermon. It's about action. Disciple means follower, not observer. A follower means we have to move. Jesus is going to lead us into dark places. Jesus is going to, to lead us to people that, that need Him. And if we are His followers, we will follow Him. Wherever that may be, it might mean down into the, to the waters of baptism, but it also means it might you might follow Him into a place where there is oppression and injustice. So are we just consuming cheap grace? Or does this sermon still, these words of Jesus, do they still have the power to astound? And that's the question I'll leave you with. If you've just been consuming, please, please stop. Because while that is good, that's only the appetizer. There is so much more that Jesus has to offer. So if we can help you, and encourage you, if we can pray for you, why don't you come while we stand together and while we sing? Everyone needs compassion.